Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Um, I want to thank the praise team again for leading us in worship. Uh, one of the songs that we sang today was a new song, but it really focuses the attention on where we need to be today as we look at God's Word. Uh, it's not about us. It's all about Him. And so we're here today because we love Him and we want to learn more about Him And we want to encourage one another in the faith. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4 this morning. We have a large text before us, uh, verses 1 through 26. But this is one of the great stories in the Bible. It's the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And so while you're turning to John chapter 4, I was reminded again this past week just how much negativity there is in the news. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever noticed that? Or maybe you just tune it out completely, but it seems like just about everything that's reported these days is doom and gloom. On on the rare occasion that I see what might be a feel-good human interest story, I'll I'll oftentimes read it just to try and counteract all the the negativity. So the the other day, this article popped up in my newsfeed, and it caught my eye, and so I read it, and the title of the article was called A Chance Meeting. It was about a woman and a man who had sat next to one another on this intercontinental flight. The woman was from the United States, the man was from Europe, and to make a long story short, it was a long article, They, they ended up talking all through the flight. They enjoyed their conversation so much that they decided that they would exchange contact information. And if I remember right from the article, that long flight happened back in 1983, and this couple just celebrated their 40-year wedding anniversary. And so that was the point of the article. But while all that is, is a pretty cool story, as Christians, we would we would dismiss the idea that these two meeting one another was simply some sort of a a chance encounter or a a chance meeting. And so for me, as I read that article, it was a much-needed reminder that every encounter that we have in this life has been foreordained by God before the foundation of the world. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. Now, that was a profound meeting, right? Because they eventually became husband and wife. And so they can remember that meeting because that was when they first were introduced and all of it ended up in a 40-year marriage celebration. But are the other encounters that we have in life any less significant? Just because they don't lead to marriage, are they not still foreordained by God? And so as I was thinking about this, and I often will do that. I'll overthink things. You ever do that? You ever overthink things? Instead of just enjoying the article, oh, it's such a good, feel-good story, I was thinking, you know, this is, a, this is a reminder. There is no such thing as a chance encounter. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 reminds us that God is sovereignly working all things according to the counsel of His will. And we know from Deuteronomy 29, 29, that there are two wills of God. There is the the secret sovereign will of God that is not revealed to us. This is God's foreordained plan for the universe. 
He does not reveal that to us ahead of time, but we can always look back and see how he's been working. Do you ever do that? Do you ever look back and just go, oh, now I see how God was working. He was doing this in my life through this situation or this encounter or this circumstance. But the secret sovereign will of God is not for us necessarily, but in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says, not only do the secret things of God belong to him, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. And so we have the revealed word of God in our possession, and this is how we know how to live life. This is how we know how to navigate circumstances in life. It's sobering to think that every encounter that we have in this life is a divine appointment. This morning, as we begin to examine chapter 4 in our study of the Gospel of John, we find a perfect example of a divine appointment because it's an appointment with Jesus himself. And so our mission for today is to begin to examine this divine appointment that the Apostle John records for us between Jesus and a Samaritan woman that he meets at Jacob's well. And so I want to read this to you. It's verses 1 through 26, so we're going to have to really focus in here because it's a long text. But once I read it, then we're going to go through it, and we're going to see exactly what this encounter looks like in real life. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that, and, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What an encounter. What a divine appointment. And so really there are four parts to this encounter that we want to look at today. And the first one is what what I've entitled the situation. The situation. Again, verse 1, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but the disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. Uh, It's near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the, the sixth hour. So, obviously, this is a narrative that was written by the Apostle John, so there's a, a continuity and a flow to, to this gospel. Folks had gotten very familiar with the ongoing ministry of John the Baptist. He was a, a very polarizing figure, especially among the Pharisees. Chapter 3 concludes with John the Baptist's final recorded testimony about Jesus. And his words are still ringing in our ears that he must decrease and we, he must, that, that John the Baptist must decrease and Jesus must increase. And so we put our own name in there that, yes, John the Baptist said he must decrease, Jesus must increase. But we put our own name in there that I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Oh, that we would be more like John the Baptist in that regard and in his heart that that he would desire to decrease and that the Lord would increase. But we move into chapter 4. And we find that the Pharisees are also continuing to keep very close tabs on Jesus because word was getting around that he was performing these miracles and there were all kinds of things happening. Wherever Jesus would show up, there were big time things happening. And so in addition to all that, the Pharisees had either observed themselves or they were informed by others that Jesus' disciples were now baptizing many more new disciples. And you remember, a disciple simply means a follower. These are followers of Jesus. So the Pharisees are getting very concerned that many are being turned away from Judaism to Christianity. Now, 
while we're here on the subject, I think it's important to know that the baptism of John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples was not quite the same as Christian baptism that we practice today because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, right? Their baptism was centered around repentance from sin and was tied to the coming kingdom. And so if we can shift gears for a moment, just for a brief moment, I want to mention uh, three important truths about the act of baptism. It's the Greek word baptizo. It means to immerse or, or to dip. The biblically prescribed mode of baptism is immersion. And that's the first thing that we need to understand about baptism. If you look back at chapter 3 and verse 23, just across the page, it says, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was what? Much water there. Why would there need to be much water if pouring or sprinkling was the prescribed mode of baptism? All throughout Scripture, whenever baptism is mentioned in the water sense, it always refers to immersion or dipping down into and back out of. All throughout the book of Acts and even into the epistles, we find the the spiritual significance of baptism is only illustrated through the act of, of immersion. And so Christian baptism that we practice today as a church, one of the ordinances of the church, it's not only representative of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but believers having, having died to sin, and now they are alive in Jesus Christ. So first, the biblically prescribed mode of baptism is immersion. Second, the root meaning of baptism is identification. So when a person is baptized, they are identifying with Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. I think we baptized nine different people this past year, who testified to all of us that they are true believers in Jesus Christ. They identified with Jesus. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 2, that that the Jews were all baptized into Moses, he's saying there that they identified with Moses. They identified with his message. And in the same way here, many were being baptized by John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples because they identified with this message of repentance. Third, because identification is at the heart of the meaning of baptism, the act of baptism is in no way salvific. In other words, baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It is an act of obedience. We are what is referred to as credo-baptists which means that we baptize on the confession of a creed or a belief, the belief that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God who provides redemption for all who believe. But it's more than that, right? It's more than that. Baptism is personal. It's personal. It's a personal public acknowledgement that we are a true believer in Jesus Christ and that we desire to follow him and his ways. I think it's important that we be reminded about baptism, what it is and what it isn't, because that's what the Pharisees lead with here. Jesus and his disciples were preaching the same message as John the Baptist, that people need to repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. Now, I just want to show you this real quick. So turn with me back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. We're going to do a little groundwork here. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. So notice here, talking about the ministry of Jesus, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sound familiar? We just looked at this in the first three chapters of the Gospel of John as it relates to what John the Baptist was preaching. So John the Baptist and Jesus were preaching the same message. And this is the same message that Jesus told his disciples that they were to preach. So just go with me back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Again, preparatory for what we want to look at today, but important. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Most of us, when we talk about the Great Commission... We think of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? Well, this is another account of the Great Commission here that Luke, in his gospel, relays to us. And it begins in verse 44. And now he, meaning Jesus, said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted, departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So the context of that is that Jesus had gone to the cross. He had died in the place of sinners, provided perfect redemption for all who would believe in him. He was resurrected the third day. And then as we know, he appeared, reappeared in a glorified body after his resurrection, was on the earth for 40 days and met with with hundreds of different people. His parting words before he ascended back up into heaven Okay, 40 days after the resurrection, he's back on the Mount of Olives and he is talking to his disciples and he's saying to them, this is the message that I want you to proclaim to all the nations. Matthew records it a little bit differently than Luke, but it's the same message that sinners are to repent and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin because the kingdom's coming. Eventually, the kingdom will be here, and only those who know Christ as Savior from sin will be a part of his kingdom. And so as we go back then to John chapter 4, we're going to move along here in the text, but it says here in verses 3 through 5 that Jesus left Judea and headed back to the region of Galilee. 
So if you know the, the topography, the geography of Israel, the Sea of Galilee is at the northern part of Israel, and at the southern part of Israel is the Dead Sea, and it's connected essentially by the Jordan River. Okay, So Jesus has gone back up towards the Sea of Galilee, into the Galilean region. So he's back into uh, the place where he, he started. Uh, the distance, if you were to, to check the distance between Judea and Galilee, it's about 70 miles. Okay, So Jesus was 70 miles from where he was originally, a long, grueling trip that would have taken about two and a half days to travel by foot. So there are many routes to make that journey, but the most direct route was through Samaria. And so if you recall from our study of the minor prophets, after the, the reign of Solomon, Israel was split into two kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But as we saw in our study of the minor prophets, the northern kingdom took on the name of its capital, And so the northern kingdom was often just referred to as Samaria. Sychar was a city in the greater region of Samaria. And it was near the city of Shechem, which is where Jacob had purchased a plot of ground that was later given to his son Joseph. And the story of all that is provided for us in the latter chapters of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapters 33 and 48. And so on that ground... Jacob had a deep well built that would provide fresh water for those who lived in those parts and for those who were traveling through that region of Israel. So Jesus was tired and thirsty, and he stops at this popular well to take a break and to get some water for the rest of his journey. John says it was about the sixth hour when Jesus arrived. So most likely this meant that it was about six hours after sunrise, which would put it right around 12 noon, right in the heat of the day. And so Jesus is there in the heat of the day. He's tired from his journey. He's as thirsty as you can get. And so that's the situation. And all of that plays into the session, what we want to call the session, the session that he has with this woman at the well. Verse 7 says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And so Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, uh, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And so where do you get that living water? So she's saying, Look, you don't even have a bucket. You're here. And, and whenever I go through a narrative like this, I'm always picturing what I think it looks like. You ever do that? So I'm picturing that Jesus is, and Jesus was truly God and truly man. So he experienced all of the things that men and women would experience. He was physically tired. 
physically beat. He had just walked all this distance, and he's finally at this well, but he got no bucket. He has no way to reach down and get into the water. This is why he engages this, this woman at this time. She goes on to say in verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So again, picture it in your mind's eye. Jesus is sitting at this well by himself. And so in my mind's eye, I'm thinking he's under a tree that's over on the side of the well. He's sitting there. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. He's all by himself because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And this woman walks up to draw some water. And as I said, this is a very popular well, not only because of its strategic location, but because it's a very deep well. It's about 100 feet in depth. It's connected to an underground spring. It produces fresh water. And so Jesus engages the woman, and he tells her to give him a drink. Now, this was no doubt startling to this woman. So she then answers Jesus by asking him a question. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And so this exchange is highly unusual for many reasons. First, men generally didn't speak to women in public. Even husbands wouldn't address their wives in a public setting. Second, rabbis didn't engage with immoral people. And we'll see here later that this woman had a very checkered past. And then third, the Jews despised the Samaritans because they were a mixed breed. After the Assyrians overthrew the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., Israel was overrun with non-Jews who married Jewish women and their offspring were then referred to as the Samaritans. So by this time, during Jesus' day, the Samaritans were viewed as social outcasts. They were rejected by the Jewish people. And so what makes this so unusual is Jesus continues to engage her. He basically says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water. So the Samaritan woman is confused on many fronts. This whole encounter begins with Jesus asking for physical water, but then he begins to turn the tables on her, and he says, really, you should be asking me for living water, spiritual water. Jesus is referring to the same spiritual cleansing that he spoke about with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, if you want to look at that. You remember this. We just went through this a couple of weeks back. Verse 4 of John 3, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's talking about a spiritual cleansing. Cleansing. 
And we saw that when we looked at Ezekiel chapter 36. Water was often used to illustrate spiritual cleansing. The cleansing that every sinner needs to have a right relationship with God. And so Jesus' point is that he is the sole giver of salvation to repentant sinners. The sole giver of that cleansing water. But just like Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman who who is void of the Holy Spirit, lacks the spiritual understanding to grasp what Jesus is saying here. And so she says in verse 11, you don't even have a bucket. You don't have a bucket. Our father Jacob gave us this well, and surely you're not greater than him. Jesus then begins to explain to her what he means. And so he begins to distinguish between physical water and spiritual water. Again, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well water, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Verse 15 tells us that she still doesn't get it. She still doesn't grasp what Jesus is saying. She thinks Jesus is offering some sort of a super water. A water that's so good and so satisfying that she wouldn't have to keep coming to the well each day to draw water. And so as I'm working through this this week, I stopped right here. I just stopped. And I ask myself the question personally, but I want to ask you as well, because I, I think about this and I think, I just, I, I just can't help but wonder how many folks, if they were in the position of Jesus and they're engaging with this woman and she initially shows no interest in spiritual things, right? Boop, nothing. There's just nothing there. How many would just give up? How many would just give up and move on? No hint of any interest here. But what is so profound to me is that Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't stop, get his water, and move on. No, he continues to engage this woman. And I think we can learn an important lesson from Jesus here. And the lesson is to keep pressing on with folks who need the gospel right? Keep pressing on, even if they seem resistant. Even if they're not currently grasping the spiritual ramifications of rejecting it. I literally knew a guy who would always say that he had a three-strike rule. He'd give the gospel three times to a person, and if they didn't receive it, he would move on never to engage them again. Folks, some people hear the gospel message a hundred times or more before the Lord opens their eyes to the truth of his gospel and they see their sin and their need of a savior. I fall into that category. I sat in church for years and years and years and heard the gospel every single week. We all need to be reminded that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel message that's enumerated for us in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. And the gospel message is tied to a person, right? It's tied to a 
person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, meaning the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and we'll see that in a moment, and also to the Greek. And so if the gospel is the only power source that leads to the Holy Spirit's working in the lives of people spiritually, why aren't Christians more persistent in giving others the gospel? Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans ten fourteen. How? Then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear without somebody proclaiming this powerful gospel message? And so it just struck me as I was going through this encounter and I was looking at it in greater detail and I read it and I reread it and I reread it again and I'm thinking, you know what? A lot of people would have given up. No spiritual fruit here. I'm not seeing it. She's not turning. She's not saying anything. She's not even seeming like she's following what I'm saying. So we just move on. But Jesus doesn't do that. And all of this leads us then to number three, the surprise. The surprise. First, the situation. Second, the session. And now third, in verses 16 through 19, we find the surprise. Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one from whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So Jesus is continuing to reveal himself here to the Samaritan woman, right? He tells her to go get her husband. Bring him to me. And she quickly responds (coughs) that she currently has no husband. Jesus said, yeah, I know that. I know. You've had five husbands. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. So the woman is shocked She's never met this guy before. She's never met Jesus before. And as far as as he's concerned, he's not had an encounter with this woman, and yet he knows all this stuff about her. She's shocked that Jesus seems to know all this information about her, even mentioning here in verse 19 that he must be a prophet. He must be a prophet. And so this brings us then to the full revelation of Jesus as the Savior First, the situation. Second, the session. Third, the surprise. And now fourth, the Savior. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem it is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her these profound words, I who speak to you am he. The woman who's engaging with Jesus has now been exposed to the truth that he's way more than a prophet. He's way more than a nice guy who's engaging with this Samaritan woman. He is indeed proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one sent from God to come and to do what no one else could do, to provide redemption for sinners. So the Samaritan woman is obviously getting very comfortable talking with Jesus. He's broken down all the barriers that might have divided them, and it's pretty clear that she's beginning to realize that there's something extremely unique about him. But with that, she knows that the Jews and the Samaritans were worlds apart, in their knowledge and understanding of God. So she starts to express their differences here. She begins by saying that she's well aware that the Jews viewed Jerusalem as their seat of their worship of God. That's where the temple was. But the Samaritans viewed the wilderness surrounding Shechem as their seat of worship. It's there that Abraham had built an altar to God. And so Jesus essentially dismisses the debate as to which location was most suitable to worship God After all, Jesus knows that it's only going to be in about 40 more years, in AD 70, that the the temple, which was in Jerusalem, would eventually be destroyed. Instead, he goes to the heart of what true worship is. You see, the Samaritans did not know God. They rejected most of the Old Testament and embraced only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Jews, however, had the benefit of the entire Old Testament Scriptures, including the, the, uh, the prophets. And so the Jews knew the fullness of God revealed, and because Jesus was a Jew, salvation, verse 22, is from the Jews. Plus, Israel was God's chosen people, so salvation was first brought to them. Remember what we just read, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, Jesus was coming to break down all the barriers, all the barriers. It wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter today if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter your, your country of origin. What matters is that you are responsible before a holy God to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance of sin and faith in him and what he's accomplished for you on the cross of Calvary. Jesus cuts to the quick, he goes to the source, he talks about the heart of what true worship is. So we move down to verse 23. This gets very interesting. Jesus says that an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so what does that mean? He's referring here to this unfolding plan of God's redemption. Jesus will soon die for sinners and will be resurrected on the third day. Remember, why did Jesus come to the earth? 
He came to the earth for a specific purpose, right? To, to live a perfect life, to obey the law perfectly, so that he would qualify as the sinless Son of God that would satisfy the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. And he would die in the place of sinners who would place their faith and trust in him. Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman that an hour is coming when none of this is going to matter. This back and forth between the Jews and the Samaritans. He tells her that she will be responsible for who she worships. Location will have no bearing on worship. And so here we we see Jesus pointing to the sovereignty of God the Father. In other words, all those who Jesus was sent to redeem will become his true followers, his true worshipers. God wants authentic worshipers. Those, verse 24, who know him and worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says that true worship must be in spirit, meaning from the heart. This isn't a capital S spirit. It's a small s spirit. He's referring to the heart. There is no worship when our hearts are not right with him. When our hearts are not fully engaged in adoration of him. But the other part of the equation is that our worship is only accepted by God when it's based on his truth. So unless we have the right knowledge of God, there is no worship in truth. You see, both are necessary for God-honoring worship. Spirit without truth can lead to an empty emotionalism that'll wane over time. Truth without spirit is dry and cold. That's what the Pharisees did. The only worship that God accepts is the joyous appreciation of God informed by the Scriptures. The more we know about God, the more we appreciate Him. The more we appreciate Him, the deeper our worship will be. The deeper our worship, the more that God is glorified. It matters. Truth matters. Truth matters. Our hearts matter. And those two things combined are the, is the worship that God will accept from us. He doesn't like vain repetition. He doesn't like mantras. He doesn't like cold, dry orthodoxy. He loves truth that comes to life in us. And so we glorify him not only with our lips, but we glorify him with our lives. We worship him not only with our lips, but we worship him with our lives. So a lot of people, I think, sort of segregate their worship. So we're going to church today, and we're going to worship the Lord, right? And we did. We did. We worshiped Him in song, and, and, and we sang out, and we praised Him. The songs that we sang were all biblically based song. So we worshiped him in truth, but was our heart in it? Was our heart there? The deeper our worship, the more God is glorified. I think we often think that when we sing, we're worshiping God. But what are we doing right here? What are we doing right now? As we look at the God of the universe and his eternal word to us, we're worshiping. Our hearts are tuned in 
to who He is. We're centering our attention on His truth. And this is what is so transformative. So worship is the outflow of a heart that's right before God, that's centered on the truth of God, and worship is what comes as a result. Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century pastor and theologian, said it this way. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections, emotions, of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. It's easy to stir up a crowd. It's easy to stir up emotions. The emotions are not bad. In fact, this is what he's referring to here when he talks about the Spirit. He's talking about our inner being. So he's talking about this, this, this immaterial part of us that is our heart expression before Him. But it's all empty if it's not based on truth. So it's easy to get people stirred up. Oh, but their hearts are cold. They don't know Christ, but they can get wrapped up in the music of things. Living your life based upon emotion is a train wreck. We've all done it. We all know that. It's nothing profound. I mean, if we, if we lived our lives based upon how we felt, What a roller coaster. I've done it. I've done it. Oh, it's a great day. Why? Because I felt good about it. You know what I mean. But things can change on a dime, right? So we go from an emotional high to an emotional low. Now what do we got? You see, Christianity is not void of emotion. In fact, Jesus is saying here that we must worship Him with our hearts, but worshiping with our hearts is not going to get it done in the area of worship that He accepts unless it's based on His truth. So our hearts must be right and our orthodoxy must be right. And so this section closes out with Jesus acknowledging to the Samaritan woman that He is indeed the Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He is indeed the Christ. Look at 25. The, the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. So the Samaritans had an idea of this coming Messiah. Now, they didn't necessarily uh, know that all the ins and outs of who the Messiah was. They know that he was who was called the Christ. When that one comes, they're looking for all these things, and he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I'm the guy. I am he who you speak. Unbelievable. Now, we're going to see the, the outcome of this encounter next week. Um, we're going to look at verses 27 and following, but we're going to see how this, all, this whole thing comes together. But what a profound story that really happened in the life of Jesus. 
So what are some, some takeaways from the text? Let, let me just give you three real quickly. Three big picture takeaways. Number one, there is no such thing as a chance meeting. There is no such thing as a chance meeting. God is sovereignly in control of all things, including the salvation of the souls of men and women. God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens outside of his control. So there's no such thing as a chance meeting. This is not a chance meeting. This was a divine appointment. Secondly, Jesus always showed great love and compassion for sinners. This is evidenced by his care and concern for the Samaritan woman. But you notice the contrast with how he treated her and how he treated the fake religious people like the Pharisees, right? He had great disdain for the religious Pharisees, the fakes. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So first, there's no such thing as a chance meeting. Second, Jesus always showed great love and compassion for sinners. And then number three, worship that God accepts is from the heart and based on His truth. Worship is not an experience that we have. By its very nature, worship is the lowering of ourselves and an elevation of and recognition of the majesty and holiness of God. Worship is always upward focused with the attention off of ourselves and on to Him where it belongs. What a great encounter! What a great encounter! I love what we've learned about John the Baptist and his heart for Jesus. But now we're transitioning from the heart of John the Baptist to the heart of Jesus. And we see how much he had time for sinners. Do we have time for sinners? Are we in the lives of people that need Jesus? Look, I get the world's influence. I understand how negative that can be. I get all that. I do. I talked about how negative the news is every single day. So I get all that. But we're in the world. We're not of the world, but we're in the world, and we are His ambassadors. We're the ones that are to proclaim this gospel message to a dying world. We're to be salt and light in this world. God has carved a niche for his people. God, in his own providence, uses people like us, sinful people like us, to proclaim about him, the sinless Son of God. Remarkable. Remarkable. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. And Lord, may we take to heart these admonitions, especially as it relates to worship, that we would worship You in spirit and in truth, with our lips and with our lives. And as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, may we be reminded of all that Your Son has done for us in providing salvation on the cross of Calvary. We thank You for the personal nature of salvation. And we thank You and we praise You. And it is our desire to worship You this day. Amen. You turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and as you're turning there, as we have this time of communion together at the beginning of each month, uh, let me ask you really two questions. You know, as you hear the excellencies of Christ uh, from the pulpit, uh, what goes on in your mind? Are you meditating on those truths? Are you rejoicing in those truths? We're certainly getting that in the Gospel of John, right? And then as you speak with others, as you have conversations, certainly in the body of Christ, but as we've just been challenged, even with the Gospel as we walk out these doors, what's coming out of your mouth? Are you proclaiming those excellencies? Are you rejoicing together in those when we see one another? And as we're being reminded of these and as we're growing in Christ, are we, are we lifting him up? Because this is a time in which we remember what he's done for us. That's what we do. We stop together as the body of Christ. We read this passage to challenge us, to reset, to remind us of the gospel. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Would you grab those cups in front of you, and as you start to wrestle with that, let me just remind you, here just for a moment, that as we are partaking of communion, communion is open here to all believers, all believers. But did you see there, I believe it was verse 26, that we, we examine ourselves before the Word and before the Lord. So as a believer in Christ, you participate in remembering what He's done for us. But first, you have to be capable of even examining yourself before His Word. And so, this is also a time of getting right with the Lord. Yes, I know, we're not able to name every single sin. We sin every single day before the Lord. 
but we're to have a short account. And so this is a time individually, we'll give to you, you know, just time here separately, but together in the body of Christ that we'll stop, we'll remember what he's done for us, and we'll make things right between us and the Lord. You may begin.